The views expressed in our episodes are ours alone and do not represent any other organizations. Our episodes discuss internet crimes against children and cases that involve the exploitation of children and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Yeah, we don't want to do anything to scare your children. That's the last thing we want to do. We don't want to scare anybody. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Catfish Comps. I am Tony Godwin. And I am Brandon Poor. We're so thankful for you joining us. Uh, the time that we have been talking about a lot has come. We are going to speak with Dr. Michael Burke momentarily and introduce you to him. Uh, but before we do, let's quickly shout out and make a mention to, we've just recently found out that we yep. have some supporters and listeners in the Kaufman County District Attorney's Office. So, yeah, thank uh, you very much. Thank you for your support. Hello to the Kaufman County DA's office. Right. Um, and um, I wanted to just give a quick shout out because I've gotten some inquiries. Um, we recently launched a bunch of merchandise. Uh, we had a little uh, hurdle to get over, but we did get over that. So you can go to our website, catfishcops.com, and just hit the merchandise tab uh, and see the things there. But what I wanted to emphasize is that there are, as you go into the merch, the specific stuff that you have an interest in, you can absolutely customize it. So that's where the questions have come in. Like, well, I, because there's logos on there with dark letters, with white letters, depending on the color of shirt that you're wearing. And, uh, Tony's or, actually wearing a shirt that has yeah. catfish cops on the sleeves. That's just words in a font that he chose as well. Yeah. So you can customize and make things different from, uh, and that's the benefit of that platform is. Yeah. They so have I just wanted to mention it. So people knew that it's not just whatever you see on the screen, you can customize things, move it around and size it and add text and, I threw our hashtag on the back of the shirt, you know, predators busted that we always use and, and whatnot. So that's what I just want to give a quick shout out for. All right. And we're talking very quickly to get through those things so that we can get right to introducing our guest today. I guess without further ado, we'll go right into that and let him yeah. talk about his background. But we are so, so excited to welcome Dr. Michael Burke. Welcome, Dr. Burke. Welcome, sir. Thanks. Thanks very much for having me. Did you want me to go into my background? Or yeah, let's talk about, yeah, to, let's talk about who you on. are a little bit and what you've done and so that our listeners can understand kind of where you're coming from. Yeah, sure. So uh, I am a clinical psychologist by training and a clinical psychologist and forensic psychologist in practice. Uh, I spent most of my career uh, with the United States Department of Justice. So the first eight years was with the Federal Bureau of Prisons. I evaluated and treated sex offenders, uh, almost all of whom had been involved with the downloading, distribution, or receipt of child pornography or child sexual abuse images. Uh, and then the last 13 years, I was with the United States Marshal Service, where I had the honor of uh, both creating and then uh, running the behavioral analysis unit. Uh, and I just uh, retired about a month and a half ago from that uh, job to uh, go into private practice. So that's uh, my career is pretty much focused around sexual offending and trying to prevent um, these guys from gaining access to our children and committing acts of harm against our most innocent uh, population. Absolutely. Well, congratulations on your retirement. Yeah, that's got to uh, be sweet. From one and into the other. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not uh, changed much. I'm sure your work schedule is just as busy in private practice uh, as it was so, yeah. you know, professionally there as well. So, uh, well, we have referenced you uh, many, 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 many times over the course of our uh, of our podcast here. And, and, uh, and actually we tell our listeners many times when we're saying things, you know, we're not psychologists, so we can't speak to this. So today is our opportunity to say, opportunity <laughs> to say you are a psychologist and the listeners will get to hear someone talk with authority 
on this thing. So sure. other than doing the, I guess, tell our, our listeners a bit, um, just kind of briefly about the difference between the behavioral analysis unit and the, the Bureau of prison studies. What are you doing different things in those? Or are they pretty much the same thing at just different locations? No, no, they're quite different. So in the, in the Bureau of prisons from 2000 to 2008, uh, I was in the uh, sex offender treatment program. So we were trying to help these men, uh, and it was all men in this particular program. We were trying to help them learn to manage their deviance um, because there's no cure for pedophilia or, or sexual interest in children. Uh, so because there's no cure, we, we, we operate out of a, a management model, trying to help them you know, learn how to not act out on these predilections and impulses. So that was the first part of my career. Uh, in 2006, there was a congressional act. The uh, Adam Walsh Act was passed, and, and that really expanded the abilities for different federal entities to do a lot more work uh, in this domain. And one of the things that it created for the Federal Bureau of Prisons was the opportunity to uh, civilly detain and civilly commit uh, dangerous sex offenders. Uh, and uh, that was the first time the federal government had been allowed to civilly commit sex offenders. And so we um, uh, literally overnight uh, went from becoming a, the sex offender treatment program to becoming the commitment and treatment program for sexually dangerous persons. Wow. And at that point, I began at that point, I began evaluating inmates for civil commitment. I evaluated the first uh, inmate who was considered for civil civil commitment. Uh, he was civilly detained and that case went all the way up to the Supreme Court. Um, and, um, you know, subsequently uh, there's been, you know, uh, in fact, all inmates in the federal system are considered to see whether they meet criteria for civil commitment. Um, I was also a polygraph examiner uh, starting in 2002. So I began polygraphing sex offenders to try to unearth undetected crimes. Mm. Now, uh, when I jumped over to the Marshal Service, that was a very different mission. Uh, the Behavioral Analysis Unit, now, you know, I was more involved with the identification, location, and apprehension of fugitive sex offenders. And that could include men and women who were supposed to register and chose not to, um, or it could include, you know, people that didn't show up for sentencing or what have you. Um, and then, but, you know, then we began working cold cases and we began uh, getting back into research. Uh, and so it's a, it was a very different environment and a different mission, but I still felt um, that we were, you know, making an impact and making a difference, uh, which is pretty critical to me. Um, so, yeah, both, both jobs were valuable, but I, I, I absolutely loved uh, all of all of my time with the U.S. Marshal Service and the team that I was able to work with, just absolutely, you know, incredible people. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, oh, I should also mention they they the Marshal Service also allowed me to indulge another uh, academic interest of mine, which is psychological wellness and taking care of officers, investigators, analysts, and other people who are exposed to disturbing media, uh, such as child you know child abuse images. Uh, this work can can have a you know a, a heavy uh, toll on on people that are involved with it, and and it's really important for folks to learn techniques to sort of armor up and build up some psychological you know resistance, learn some coping strategies, and and just help people try to uh, leave work at work, yeah. so to speak. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, I know. I know for the agency that I work for. Um, that is so paramount today than it was when I started 28 years ago where you just, you never mentioned anything like that. Gosh forbid you were to come in and tell somebody, you know, man, what I saw yesterday or what I was exposed to yesterday really kind of screwed me up. And, uh, but in today's environment, I know from our administration, from the top down, you know, an officer's wellness is really, really highly considered and uh, and has value. And so they recognize that now. And, and I know Brandon's department is the same as mine. And so I'm thankful for guys like you and in the system that are out there, you know, helping out because we have a couple of um, folks here locally that, you know, offer up the same sort of services. So thank you very much for doing that. 
Yeah. So today is one of the things that I think we're um, appreciative for and, and that we get to see your presentations much more often than any other one. I think any other people that are outside of this arena would get to hear from you. Um, so unless they're specifically working in this field, they may, you know, our, the people that listen to us are primarily parents of kids and people who are listening to, you know, hear the cases and, and sort of find out ways that they can protect children in their own lives. And so I, I, think that a lot of the people that may be tuning in may not have any sort of understanding about, you know, what goes into the research and the study of sex offenders. Um, so I, I know that they've heard us talk about the Butner study, but can you kind of give us a briefing on what that is and sort of what, what's the purpose of that study? Yeah. So the, the, the Butner study, <laughs> the Butner study has a long history, but I'll try to, uh, <laughs> as succinct as I can. Because, Put, pack 20 uh, or so years in. Many, the- <laughs> uh, yeah, there's many backstories weaving in and out. But um, but I, I suppose the, the easiest way to explain um, what we were about when we created the Butner study, and by the way, it's called the Butner study because the prison where, where I was working, where the sex offenders were, were housed and receiving treatment, was in Butner, North Carolina, and it's called the Federal Correctional Institution, Butner. So um, when we, when we were treating these men, what we realized because they were disclosing in individual therapy or group therapy, um, these, these were men who were there, for example, for possessing child pornography. Um, but they would disclose in group that their deviance was more widespread, that they had engaged in other adjunctive acts, which isn't, you know, it shouldn't be surprising. I mean, there are, you know, there are there are drug addicts who are also breaking into homes or are, you know, committing stick ups or whatever, you know, uh, shoplifting. I mean, people do commit adjunctive crimes when they're motivated, um, you know, by by something as powerful as a as a as a sexual uh, paraphilia or some other predilection. These are very powerful, primitive motivational drives. So it's not really surprising that it would manifest in different ways. But um, but we, we we also came to the realization that a lot of these men that were disclosing hands-on or contact victims, none of that was known to the judge upon sentencing. None mm-hmm. of them had none of that had ever come out. So their risk assessments tended to be very low. People were seeing them as quite harmless. And even among treatment providers, there was this notion that there's such a thing as a hands-off offender and a hands-on offender. Right. When in fact, what we realized is in a lot of cases, these were one, these were one and the same. These were just someone with a sexual interest who was caught online and then someone else with the same sexual interest in children who had a victim who made a disclosure, who made an outcry. Both of those men may have had hands-on victims, and both of those men may have had child abuse images on their computer. It's just that one was caught by online investigators, and one was caught by a child abuse investigator. So um, what we tried to do is just explain that these are not dichotomous groups. These are not distinct groups, that there is crossover and that if someone possesses child abuse images, that it is it's we we may be doing a, a more of a service to our children if we also assume that they pose a risk to the actual children in their lives, and not that this is just something silly that they're doing on a computer, something harmless. No, it's actually a sign that they have an interest in children that they could also be manifesting in the real world. So we tried to produce that study. What was the, um, now, what was the yeah. finding on that? That was there a percentage yeah, of them? We, yeah. So we had about 85% of the men in our program when they left the program, acknowledged that they had committed contact sex offenses wow. and only about, I don't remember the exact number, like around 25, maybe a quarter of them were known to be contact offenders when they came in. So we have this, really this this jump from 
um, from you know a, a a much smaller fraction of the offenders, and the assumption that three quarters of them were quote unquote just pictures defendants, and really what we jump to is that eighty five percent of them have contact offenses. So you know, and by the way, of the fifteen, maybe they just chose not to tell us. Yeah, I mean, right. it could have been it could have been even higher. So maybe we should just make it. You know, maybe it doesn't really serve us conceptually to see these as distinct as distinct offenders okay you know there was a lot of controversy about this study um and you know a lot of criticism and 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 some of it's uh some of it's fine you know some of it's um scientifically based it's it's great criticism uh there was a lot unfortunately that was just kind of made up and and people were sort of just trying to knock it down especially you know, defense attorneys that didn't like the idea that their clients were now going to be seen as dangerous. So there were a lot of people really kind of trying to, you know, trying to, um, you know, punch holes in it in, in some weird kind of ways. Um, so we had to sort of, <laughs> we had to just uh, bear, bear through that, um, that barrage of, uh, of, of criticisms um, but you know, again, some of the things were uh, were were valid, and then we did a another study a few years later, and we remedied some of those some of those issues that had been brought up, and we also found uh, a significant jump from hands off to hands on uh, offenders with that second study. So yeah, the se- I was going to try and clarify the timeline. You did the the first study found these things. And then the second study was addressing some of those critiques to make it even more bolstered. Is that fair to say a bolstered study and, and actually, you know, found that it was not only true, but it was almost more true. Yeah. Well, I mean, anytime a researcher does a study, I mean, you, there, you know, the perfect study doesn't exist, right? So there's going to be a, a researcher at uh, university of Texas and, and then he or she's going to look at, at, um, whether people should be viewing their cell phones while they're driving. And they're going to, you know, pull in a bunch of college freshmen and sophomore and, and have them sit in a, you know, a simulated car and look at their, at their cell phone and gauge their reaction time. Um, and they're going to publish a study. It's going to say, this is, this is dangerous activity. Well, another researcher can say, well, but that was limited to college freshmen yeah, and right. college sophomores. And another one's going to say, well, Maybe in Texas it's dangerous, but maybe in Connecticut it's not dangerous. Or maybe yeah. in Canada it's not. Right? So it's always <clears> going to be someone that's going to say this doesn't include this other population, or the sampling could have been altered, and so and 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 that's okay. That's what makes good science. Right. So in our case, one of the things they mentioned is well, all of your subjects are in a prison, and they all volunteered for treatment, uh, which is which is quite true. I mean, we don't force inmates to participate in treatment, so. That that is absolutely fair. That's that's a fair criticism. Um, maybe offenders that aren't in a voluntary treatment program, maybe they're different. Like maybe that's that's something that I didn't really feel that they you know my my hypothesis would have been that they're not too different from those same right. offenders out in the community. But it has to be tested in the world of science. You can't right. just say, well, right. I don't think so." Right. So when we did the next study, we didn't use any subjects from prison. We used them all at the time of their arrest, uh, and none had volunteered because they were being arrested. <laughs> right. They were they were it was samples of people that at the time of arrest, uh, and um, and none of those men uh, had any contact sex offenses. They were all being arrested for online offenses. They were all being arrested for right. possession of child bribery. And we immediately interviewed them and used a, a, a polygraph. Oh, and by the way, we had polygraph examiners and teams from all over the country, unbeknownst to each other. So there was no, uh, they were all independently, uh, all the data came in independently from wow. all different agencies, completely different agencies, different examiners, and all the data came to us. And there were no statistically significant differences between all the data coming in. It was all the same. And it was 57 and a half percent. So what I and, and that was pre-trial 
pre-treatment, anything. That was, we had, when the investigators had no idea that they'd committed a contact, if they still got over 50% wow. of these guys acknowledging hands-on. So probably once they entered treatment, like at Butner, um, you know, that probably would have jumped again and it would have right. been closer to what we found the first time. Because but then they're going case, to you know, say that they're going to tell you something that they may not have before. Is that the difference? Well, yeah, in a treatment setting, you know, like we didn't require them to self-incriminate, you know, they didn't say, and, you know, they don't have to tell us things that would, uh, would, yeah, would have them self-incriminate. Well, at the time of when a law enforcement officer is interviewing them, there's no such guarantees in yeah. place. In fact, they're being told, if you do tell me something, this will be held against right. you in court or right. maybe, yeah. you know, so, so really in a treatment setting, it is safer for some of these men to discuss what they've done compared to in a, you know, in a law enforcement setting. So the fact that we had 50% of these guys acknowledge contact offenses it when, and it was not a therapeutic setting, it was not a safe environment. Um, that's, that is very remarkable. So what I tell people, they're like, well, you know, are, how confident are you that 85% of people who collect child abuse material are hands on offenders? Are you saying that 85% aren't, I, I say, I don't know if it's 85%. I don't know if it's 57 and a half percent. My suspicion is it's somewhere in the middle, right. right? You know, it's probably, it's probably between 57 and a half percent, which was right at the time of arrest and 85, which is this very motivated inmate population. So whatever, 65, 70, I don't know, but let's not make the assumption that this man or woman who's right. downloading this material is harmless. Yeah. Let's not man. pretend that they don't pose a risk to kids. You know, they do pose a risk to kids and a significant number of them, if given access and opportunity disclosed to us, like even the ones that didn't have hands on, they said, well, I didn't have access. I didn't have the right. opportunity. If I had, and I didn't think I was going to get caught. Yeah. I may have, I, you know, I may have acted on it. It was a, a risk analysis for them. Which it's makes sense. The, they're not looking at this for artistic value is what we always say, you know, that this is not a, a one-off kind of thing. And, and if it is, we're probably not as law enforcement coming across those, you know, one-time view incidents. We're, we're talking about a different offender here. Well, you know, it, it, this is human. This is human beings. Actually. It's not like, you know, there, there, there are some critics out there who, who, you know, are going to pretend that this is something unique to offenders or whatever. You know, if I walk over to my neighbor's garage, he's got Harley Davidson posters in his garage and signs and even one that lights up with neon. And they, you know, he may make the argument that they're beautiful machines, but he's not looking at them or have those posters up because he's a sculptor and appreciates <laughs> right. the fine lines. He likes to ride Harleys. Right. He has a Harley. Right. And if he didn't have one, if he had the opportunity, if someone was going to sell him one dirt cheap or he right. won one in a contest, he'd be ecstatic. Right. So we we put things around us because they make us happy, because they remind us of of things that we enjoy doing. They're frankly, there's there's someone in your cube in your office and they have a uh, an, an island with a pretty beach in their in their cube. That's fantasy material. That that excites them. It makes them think. It it does one of two things. It either has them think as a fantasy of what they're going to do next year when they save up a little bit more money. They're going to go to the Bahamas, or it's a reminder of something that they did. It right. reminds right. them of their honeymoon. It reminds them of. So it's either immersing them back in a memory or it's fantasy material going forward. It's the same with child abuse images. Right. For these offenders, those images either remind them and allow them to reenact and relive what they've done, and that's very exciting for them to make those memories more vivid, right. or, or it's fantasy-enhancing material. Mm. Either way, these images and videos are reinforcing those drives, right. and they're and and they're they're very dangerous materials, not only from a moral standpoint, but also 
from a psychological standpoint, from a behavioral standpoint, these are very dangerous things to give someone that has those predilections because it's strengthening them. It's it's so good to hear the words, even though I've heard you speak the words uh, in other uh, settings, our audience has not. And so what they've heard for the last year is Brandon and I uh, voicing those words, not as eloquently as you have, mind you, but we have told people over and over and over, and, and we've had sometimes just flat out arguments with those in, you know, uh, who are prosecutors to say, listen, you know, you need to be educated about this because this is not just a, a one-time situation. This isn't a, a pop-up that showed up on their computer. This wasn't an accidental download. This, you know, this is a bigger problem. And so it's, it's so refreshing to hear you say this. Uh, I hope it just affirms with our listeners, you know, the things that we've been uh, echoing <laughs> from you. Preaching for, is the word that yeah, he's preaching, looking for. Yeah, preaching is more like it. But uh, yeah, so thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah. There are, there are definitely people that will act as if, you know, this pop-up thing or, you know, that, that somehow it came unbidden to their computers and then they, 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 they were just curious and then they, they, they followed something and they felt it's like this, this tractor beam that sucked them into this, uh, <laughs> right. you know, this uh, Alice in Wonderland, you know, kind of uh, this, this, you know, rabbit hole of depravity. And, you know, even if that were true, which, it isn't because for most of us, if if an unbidden child pornography showed up on our computer, most people's reactions would be upset, anger, sadness, right. sickness. You know, they would feel sick to their stomach. And so my you know, and first of all, nobody sends random pornography to random email addresses. You know, I equate it to <laughs> now, wait, 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 that you, you're telling something completely <laughs> new to a whole line of people defending these, these offenders, yeah. right? Well, I, I, I equate it to someone sending bales of marijuana to random addresses, you know, just in case you, just in case you might be interested. It's not mine. And a, little, a little note on it that here's where you can get yeah. some more, you know, or heroin or something. You know, it just, it isn't it. what happens. But I also say, you know, even if that were true, even if people had this weird curiosity, and don't get me wrong, people are curious about morbid things. I mean, yes. Um, there's a reason why when there's a bad traffic accident, there's a whole line of people (laughs) on the wrong side of the road lined up says that they're not interested in looking at horrible things, but guess who peeks it into the car, every single car. So people do have this morbid curiosity, but, but when it comes to the abuse of children and this image of, you know, this, this, this crime scene image of a child being abused um, again, most people's reaction is, is one of significant upset. And, and my question to anyone who's proposing this is once they got into the rabbit hole, you know, once they got into the world of depravity, whether it's on the dark web, whether it's in a chat room, whether it was on some illicit site, wherever it was, they all of a sudden found themselves surrounded by child abuse images who right clicked and saved right. 400,000 times, <laughs> right? Because it, it wasn't awesome. something that happened one day and then they, and then they, you know, they, they, you know, they kind of logged off and, and were shaking the rest of the day. These are people who look at it and instead of being upset, they're, they're, they're excited. They say, wow. And they want more and they're more and more. And then they're putting them in folders and they're organizing them. And then they're sending them to other people and they're trading, etc. This is, this, this is a complete animal. Yeah. Now I will tell our, just for our listeners, it's probably not um, something for us, but there's a little bit of lag here and there. Um, obviously we are talking to Dr. Burke um, a few States away from each other. So we are talking <laughs> over um, live stream. And so if you're hearing that lag, it's, there's nothing to be done. It's just, it's just occasionally. So please bear with us on that. Well, one thing I wanted to mention about the Butner study uh, is and so people understand, like uh, hearing those who have never read it or understood it uh, might think, oh, you know, these sex offenders just came in and admitted. But what what got me is like the amount of time that you spent um, with these offenders in this treatment program and the number of hours like 
was it like 15 hours a week or, or more plus other things. And, uh, you know, the amount of time and that over that amount of time is this trust is built up and that that's why these disclosures, you know, they're not just coming out of the gate. I would imagine, uh, and you're certainly welcome to tell us if otherwise, but I doubt anybody just came right out of the gate and like, oh yeah, well I did this hands-on offense against this child. Uh, they just never asked me about it, so I never said anything. I, I would assume, and and correct me if I'm wrong, that took some period of time or length of time and trust built up within the group, and it sort of addresses that in that Butner study. Is that correct, sir? Yeah, that's right. So so we we treated them on average for about 18 months. Uh, and we spent, uh, it was much longer than 15 hours a week. It was, it was around the clock that they were in the therapeutic milieu. So they were in a special residential program surrounded by, uh, other sex offenders and staff, uh, a a lot of staff. And, um, and we were there with them all day long, every single day. Uh, Sometimes I left at midnight because I was polygraphing them after the uh, four o'clock count. And, um, so we were with them in the morning, all afternoon. We ran 40 groups, uh, therapeutic groups a week. We did psychoeducation with them. We did individual therapy with them. Um, there was five psychologists and four treatment specialists uh, for 108 guys. Wow. So there was a lot of staff spending a lot of time with these men. And you're absolutely right. I mean, these offenders are very difficult to um to, you know, to, to work with, to, um, to earn enough or to develop enough rapport where they trust you with things that are incredibly shameful. Um, it's in some ways, it's easier for me to get, um, to get a violent offender talking about people he's killed or assaulted right. uh, because there's, you know, he's just kind of a tough guy and it's sort of like a, almost a badge of courage or whatever. What, what stops many offenders is is not really like it well in addition to fears of of the you know the legal consequences it's also that they have so much shame and embarrassment and 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 self-loathing now that's the ones who aren't like psychopathic that's like just your your sort of traditional pedophile but but there's a lot of that stuff there so you're absolutely right it takes a long time to work with them to earn their trust to let them know that you're not judging them, you know, so to speak. I mean, on one level, obviously you're not unaware of, of the, you know, the depravity, but, but you're not, you know, as a psychologist, we're not there to, you know, like, like, like me as a, as a person, it sounds weird to say this. I don't know if I've ever said it this way before, but it's like, I'm not present. It's, you know, yeah. Yeah. you know, me as a husband, me as a father, that that guy isn't present in the room with them. Right. It's me as their doctor, you know, the as their provider, as as someone who's trying to untwist the twisted wires. Right. And 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 so there's this blank, you know, thing there and it's very nonjudgmental and very, you know, just devoted to their own. Um, rehabilitation for lack of a better word. Right. And I know we've, since we're on the area of the studies and when we're talking about just even just perspectives and perceptions for the offenders in court settings, I want to ask this question. And then we've got a a few questions just kind of um, to talk about that. But one thing that, that we see quite often is of course, sex offender treatment providers come in and testify about child abuse imagery cases and things like that. And we're always hearing these offenders, this offender is low risk um, as you said, and these studies are showing otherwise. So, is it that those sex offender treatment providers, you know, maybe they're hired by the defense or maybe they're representing the court? Are they unaware of the studies or are, is there something that leads someone to believe that this offender who hasn't disclosed online or hands on offense is only an online defense? Is there something that's leading to it seems and I hate to say this because it sounds um, a little bit skeptical of everything, but it. It's almost like every offender that they testify is is low risk. And so we're being told like these are just it's just images. It's, you know, the number of times that we hear it's just porn um, as we 
see our cases traverse the court system and we see, you know, we hear people saying, well, this offender's low risk. There's no, no evidence of otherwise. So they're low risk. And it's almost like we're just throwing out the science. Yeah. I mean, there, there's lots of different explanations for why that might occur, but if, you know, if you only look at a certain side of the research, you're certainly going to, um, uh, you're going to find what you seek when it comes to research. You know, you'll definitely find studies that show that offenders are quote unquote low risk, that sex offenders are low risk. And most of those um, are, are confusing, frankly, for the courts, uh, for, for, you know, jury, for sometimes for prosecutors, because it does, it, it does appear in these studies to say that, that the offenders who are apprehended for these crimes, like child pornography crimes, that that they don't reoffend. Um, but what's one of the distinctions that's often missed is that those studies are not really looking at reoffense. Right. What they're looking at is reconvictions. And 84% of victims never disclose their victimization ever to anyone. So you automatically have a very, very tiny subset of cases in which someone makes a disclosure. Now, out of those cases where someone makes a disclosure, you have to have, uh, they have to make a disclosure to a responsible adult. They can't make it, you know, to a kid or to some, so it has to go to a responsible adult. And by responsible, I mean that it can't be an adult who says, well, I'll handle it myself, right? or I'll handle it within the church, right. or I'll handle it within, you know, the family, or I'll handle so. It has to be someone who says, I'm going to call the police. That that's a that's a very important step, because a lot of kids tell parents and parents are like, "Okay, I'll take care of it. Mm -hmm. I'll tell I'll go talk to Uncle Larry. Right. But they have to call law enforcement. Law enforcement has to be able to come in, collect enough evidence. That evidence has to be present. Can't be staleness and, you know, statute of limitations. This has to have been something that that law enforcement can act on, that they can get that evidence to present to prosecutors. The prosecutors have to accept the case. It has to go to trial. The offender can't plead down to a lesser offense. Right. Right. They have to be tried for that sex offense. They have to be convicted and they have to lose all their appeals. So you have about 15 steps that have to occur precisely in the right way in order for that offender's reoffense to show up in official records. So when these researchers say, well, we looked at all these guys that were arrested in 2000 and only 3% of them reoffended. No, they didn't. Right. Right. That's not how many reoffended. Yeah. That's how many were reconvicted in a court of law. And an offender getting smarter after the first time, right? They, they get, yeah. exactly. I'm sorry, but they are more cautious and more intelligent in the way they reoffend. I I assume. I love the way Absolutely. you phrase that as a reconviction because uh again it's it's so uh it, it's so amazing to to hear all of this coming out of your mouth <laughs> so that our listeners can hear. So for the first just... time in the history of this podcast we're going to say he is a psychologist and there is authority and credibility there. I'm just saying it's like, you know, Brandon and I talk a lot about, you know, are people even catching what we're throwing out there? And, and you know, because we're all about awareness. We're all about education. We're all about ending, you know, sexual abuse of kids, uh, whether in real life, hands-on or online. Uh, we just happen to work the online stuff. And albeit a, a bit of that's selfish. We, yeah. we want to have less cases coming to us for investigation because it's not happening. And then the ones that we spend the hours away from home working uh, tirelessly on, we want to go to court and actually see them not have the chance to do this ever again. And so there's a little selfish ambition <laughs> yeah. there in, in trying to prevent it. But we see that that fight has become a frustrating source for us because it feels like, you know, we're we're finding these things. We're we're working hours to show that this was not low risk, and then you know everything else kind of comes in that way. So, so can I ask a question now? Uh, not that we haven't already, uh, but I, I kind of want to jump into a few of these because we do want to be respectful of your time and whatnot, sir. So, um, I'm curious from an investigator standpoint on something because I I've been in the game a long time. 
I started out, both Brandon and I started out as case-carrying detectives working hands-on off offenses <clears throat> and then transitioned over into ICAC. And so I've been working ICAC a super long time. Um, what I've noticed and what I don't quite understand the connection is, is a very high percentage of the uh, offenders that I arrest in these ICAC online situations, there's a direct somehow connection with bestiality. And I've never really put a finger on the pulse of why that may be. And I was curious if you had any thoughts about that. Yeah. So we actually looked at that. Um, in, and uh, I think it's in one of my papers, but not very, not in a very well-developed way. It was just something that we had noticed about, I want to say it was about a third of our offenders who were there for possession of child abuse images also had, um, you know, deviant um, uh, interests expressed such as with animals. Um, and, um, you know, I've been asked that question for probably 20 years. Oh, wow. Um, so yeah, no, which, which is actually a good thing. Um, I mean, in this, from a, from a research standpoint, that's not, you know, that there's definitely something there. Right. Um, and when something has, you know, when, when, when investigators on the ground, are noticing a phenomenon or noticing a correlation. That's how good science starts. Um, it starts from observational data. It starts from, you know, it doesn't matter if you're studying gorillas in the jungle or you're studying, you know, whatever it might be. Someone notices something and then they bring it to the scientists who say, okay, let's study it empirically. Let's, let's take a control sample and let's look at an experimental sample and we're going to try to, you know, modify the conditions to see if this actually is statistically significant. So, so actually, you know, you, your colleagues, the folks that are immersed in the work are, are so informative to scientists because you're the, you're the Johnny Appleseeds. I mean, you're the ones that are going out there and saying, Hey, you know, he, here's a seed that may actually turn into some really interesting study. And uh, in fact, a lot of my safeguarding work, the officer wellness stuff started at the Dallas crimes conference because I had no, a number of officers coming up and saying this work is toxic, it's hurting me, and I don't know what to do. I don't know how to leave work at work. That was all started at the ground level by people raising their hands saying, I've noticed something. Can you do something about it? So what you're saying with this bestiality, and there's a couple of other you know, interests as well, is, um, is really as yet unexplored, to my knowledge, uh, okay. empirically. But I've heard it so much. And as a treatment provider, I used to hear it constantly. Right. And by the way, not just images, but we used to almost have this, you know, it was almost a truism. If we were seeing, this would probably come out wrong, but <laughs> if we had an offender come in who grew up on the farm in Nebraska, right? it was almost known it was almost known that he had engaged in sexual activity with the animals if he had right. child victims. Right. Um, and, and that was almost like, I mean, it was, I had to have been in the 90, 90s as far as percentiles with people who, uh, who had engaged in those acts. Yeah. I was just um, curious if there was anything, I, I has, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I was just going to say, I didn't, I didn't know if there was anything that you had seen in your research over the years as to whether or not, uh, one led to the other uh, sort of a thing. Is that, you know what <laughs> like I mean? Depravity I, across the, the spectrum. I mean, it's depraved on every level. I just, you know. Well, so, so way back in 1987 and 88, uh, there was a psychiatrist in Atlanta, Gene Abel, uh, who developed uh, tests later on for looking at um, sexual interest and things like that. Um, a lot of, a lot of criticisms with some of that stuff, but, but Dr. Abel was the first to notice that paraphilias tended not to just be singular, uh, interest. So a paraphilia is a, is a deviant sexual interest. It's a, it's right. a psychiatric psychological disorder. Uh, and they, uh, on average in his program, he found it was three. So hmm. in other words, if someone is involved in, um, voyeurism, a peeping Tom is arrested um, they shouldn't, they shouldn't say, oh, we got a peeping Tom because you should also investigate to him to see if he's also the exhibitionist 
who's flashing on the train. Right. And he might also see if he might be the rapist who's been assaulting women downtown. They tend to have more than one of these paraphilias. And he oh. found three. In our program, we found four. So it wouldn't be unusual for someone with pedophilia to also have an what would we call zoophilia, which would be an interest in animals or um, some other necrophilia or urophilia. There's there's many many paraphilias right. that would so they tend not to be so um, you know I don't know what the word would be so focused or siloed. Um, they tend to branch out uh, in these other areas of depravity. So some of it probably speaks to this. Um, you know when you're so let me let me explain it this way. There are a lot of people out there, maybe in your in your listening audience here, that would relate to the fact that there are things that we would like to do that we that we don't do because we shouldn't. Right. But, you know, there are people out there. They're coveting their neighbor's wife. Right. Right. Or they would really like to see what it's like to smoke something funny. (laughs) And they know that they're going to get tested at work. They know that they can't have an affair because they've made a commitment to their part. Whatever it is, there are things that they would want to do that are wrong, but but they're being they're being inhibited. So there's legal things that get in the way and push us back. And, and there's moral things that push us back. So one of the questions would be, well, what if the moral what if your morality was gone? Hmm. What if we could just right. take that away? We just kind of allowed you to rationalize that away. You justified it. You were able to kind of compartmentalize it. So one happier life was this way. And you just put this other thing in a, in a different compartment. What if you don't have any moral inhibitions anymore, but you still have those urges? Yeah. How many people at that point would move forward and do whatever it is right now? Some people you would say, well, no, it's still illegal. They could lose their jobs. And okay. And I would say that that's right. There are, but what happens now if I reduce your fears of getting caught legally? Yeah. So the yeah. guys online, they go meet other like-minded individuals and they're taught about encryption or they're taught about ways to fool the police. Now, some of them are not true and they're going to get nailed anyway. <laughs> Try them. But they, it doesn't matter because they're gaining confidence. So what happens right. now if you're no longer afraid of the legal consequences and your moral inhibitions have disintegrated, well, now all you're left with is your drive. Now so, all you're left with yeah. is what Freud called, Freud called it your id. Yeah. Your id. It's like yeah. your inner animal that just wants to pleasure seeking animal. Right. Your, your predator. Yeah. Right. And, and that's, what's going to be acting out. And so people have asked that over years. Like that. That, that's the one so, thing that people have said that over years to us, like, why would those be together? You know, how are those? And I, and I, I think we've always said like, well, once you reach the bottom level of depravity, there's no boundaries yeah. across it. It's yeah. just open. So yeah. it sounds like that's what you're saying. Yeah. That's a better way to say it. I'm, I'm going to turn it over to you whenever I get that. <laughs> no, <way>. no, no, <laughs> no, no. Yeah, no, we got to yeah. say again, we're not psychologists. <laughs> <laughs> No, but that's yeah. I think th- I think that's right though. I mean, once the moral inhibitions are gone, then it's like you know, Katie barred the door. I mean, then it's like you know, who who knows where someone's going to go? Yeah, someone's going to start abusing very very young kids. Uh, we've had offenders that said um, at a certain point that that they begin to abuse the elderly. Now, oh. someone would say Those are two completely different things. Well, are they? What if the predilection is toward innocent and vulnerable people? What if it's toward the excitement is power motivated? Uh, It's mm. that, you know, then would you not still get filled with power if you're abusing someone who's disabled or someone who's elderly as you would a a toddler? I mean, it hurts. It it hurts us to to say this stuff out loud. But if you deal with offenders and if you want to understand offenders, one of the things you have to come to terms with is that it there are different motivational pathways, and some of them are this really dark side of humanity, like they just wanted to victimize somebody. You okay, know? So that opens it, up it, an it, area that I have never thought of, which, which is like maybe it's not only an interest in children, 
because I've always wondered what the correlation between those people that we hear are just like a, a rapist where there's maybe a power motivation or control uh, or something like that that's not even sexual. And I thought, well, how does that – that's completely separate from someone who offends against a child in this way. But there may be a crossover or it may be something like that. Yeah, so so power – I mean power, control, some of those motivations are present in a lot of crimes. Um, you know, there are there are burglars who do all kinds of weird things in homes for no other reason right. than just to exert power, right, and show control. People, they'll, they'll eat a sandwich from somebody's refrigerator. They'll take a shower. People say, why would they do that? They, right. I mean, why wouldn't they just take the items and run? Because it's not just about the items. It's right. also control. You know, rape is not always just sexual. It's sometimes it's it's more about the power and control. Um, and so that is definitely present with some offenders who are offending against children. It would have to be. It would have to be something around the dynamic. I mean, these are adult men and these are extremely helpless victims. So how could there not be at least an awareness of what we would call the power differential? I mean, it, it, it's inherent. Everyone knows that if they tell a child to do something, the child is probably going to do it because an adult told them to do. I mean, right. that power differential is well known to every adult and every child. Yeah. Mm. Um, and, and so they are present to it. Now, some of them have to counteract that or they minimize that because that actually bothers <clears throat> them because they see themselves as a true pedophile, as someone who, quote unquote, loves children. Right. So what they will do is this grooming. They will groom, they will buy the child gifts, they will treat the child really well, and of course the child's parents, because they're trying to earn their trust. And so they're going through all these, what I call moral compensation. So they're trying to, you know, uh, compensate for their evil thoughts by doing all these wonderful positive things for this family, buying them things, or taking right. the child to the baseball game, or whatever. And that's that's simply to mitigate in their own mind what we call cognitive dissonance, this, this ick feeling like, gosh, what I'm doing is, right. is, is, you know, is, 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 is so wrong. And, and this recognition of that power differential. So they have to soften that. Mm -hmm. And so they do that. And, you know, the, the mind is, is, is clever at, um, at using distortions that allow people to do what they want to do instead of what they should do. And making it more palatable for them. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Reducing guilt and shame. Yeah. Wow. Well, we will come right back next week to finish our talk with Dr. Burke. So join us as we continue this amazing discussion. I don't even want to stop it, but give us a, give us one more week and we'll see you again next week.